everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier. Today, our guest is Risa Feldman, who worked for Christy Nicolay in sport production, which we now call sport presentation. Uh, but it's really, really uh, an honor to have you here, Risa here with us today on the podcast. I'm so glad that you were able to carve out the time. Uh, thanks so much for joining. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. I'm doing well, thanks. And uh, it's been exciting to just be thinking back to the days of 2002. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. Maybe you can tell us uh, where you're joining us from. So I am now in Orange County, California. And um I had moved after the games to, I lived in Aspen for a little while and Manhattan Beach, which is where I was living. Um, and now I'm in Orange County. So a nice sunny day here today. Oh, I can imagine it's got to be beautiful there, uh, particularly this time of year. Now, what are you doing there in Orange County? Uh, just living life and having fun or are there oh, professional yeah. responsibilities <laughs> that take you there? So career-wise, currently, I am editor of a magazine that is called Journey Beyond Aspen. It's distributed in high-end hotels um, in Aspen and the Aspen Airport um, and private airport. And basically, the content is, because it's called Journey Beyond Aspen, its demographic is for the affluent traveler, and it's about places to go outside of Aspen, even though the name Aspen is in the title. So it's when people are traveling to Aspen, that's who we're grabbing as our demo. It's either people who live there or come in and I'm the editor and handle a lot of the content and writing. Um, And I've been, this is my own magazine. Um, I launched it two years ago. Um, Leading up to it, I was writing for a lot of different magazines, uh, all on travel and food. So it's doing well and it's very different. It looks like a coffee table book. Um, and it's all pictures. It's really high resolution pictures with, with very little writing, just little descriptions about each luxury uh, location that we write about. I think people now are just wanting to see pictures, tell a story rather than an article. So it's really based on that. That's so interesting. Uh, at the end of one of your previous responses there, you were just about to say that, uh, how COVID has impacted this. So why don't you let us know? What's the impact of COVID on this venture? Because it's really limited a lot of travel. Yeah, we started out doing well, my partner and I, and had a few issues under the gun. And we were being distributed in um, the Ritz-Carlton, the rooms in the Ritz-Carlton and the Hyatt and the St. Regis and the Jerome Hotel and in all the rooms. And all of a sudden COVID hits and then you know, they can't put our magazine inside the rooms or or out and about. And so the rulings came that way. And as well as the places that we were promoting, we had a lot of international destinations and we're not going to feature an international destination if people can't go there. So we had to decide what to do. Um, And we are still in the airport and we are still in the hotels, but we're not in the rooms. We're in the behind the concierge. And if somebody wants the magazine, they ask for it instead, but we still, still are being distributed there. And then we're really just focusing now on domestic travel, um, safe places that you can go that are open, and then a few international that are allowing U.S. travelers to go. But it has cut down on on everything. You know, here we started a travel magazine and COVID hits and you can't really travel. So 
but we're, we're, we're hanging on. I still believe in this publication and it's beautiful and I'm, I'm going to keep it going. So I have to ask, is it available online as well? Can readership uh, subscribe to it or, or yeah. view it online or is it only available in print? So it's a beautiful print publication. I mean, to touch it and feel it, it's silky and, and smooth and the, the, the shape is a square. However, you can go to journeybeyondaspen.com and see a digital copy of each copy. So um, if you can't see one, you know, get one in the airport or in Aspen. Yes, you absolutely journeybeyondaspen.com. And in this crazy COVID time period, is there a particular destination that Journey Beyond Aspen would recommend as we approach you know winter? Yes. I just got back from Mendocino, California, where I went up to two places. The first time I've traveled since COVID started um, one was called the Brewery Gulch Inn and about 10 rooms. And then the other was the Inn at Newport Ranch, which was in Fort Bragg, about four hours north of San Francisco. And these are remote places, but absolutely beautiful. Um, you're not near anyone. You feel completely safe. The um, A beautiful place to work, sitting outside in the red forest or at the ocean and um those two were, were the ones that I just finally started to travel to, and they'll be featured in the upcoming issue. And I have a few more coming up, but, um, you know, right now it's really being safe and making sure that the resorts are taking the precautions that they should, as well as the other guests that are staying there. All right. Well, I want to check those places out and I'm going to check your publication out online and encourage all of the listeners here to our little podcast to check it out as well. So that's exciting. That's exciting. And I hope that the industry can, uh, you know, turn around and we can get this crazy pandemic under control and, and, uh, the industry can start flourishing again because it's been, it's taken a huge hit. Yes. All right. Well, let's talk about Salt Lake, shall we? Of course. Yes. Okay. So why don't you take us back to your time in Salt Lake? And I actually want to start having a look at what you were actually doing before you started working for the organizing committee. Sure. You know, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your pathway to the Salt Lake 2002 games. Prior to the games, um, I had been living in New York. I graduated from University of Miami, immediately went to work for a sports PR agency in New York City. I had no plans to be in sports, though, or PR but it happened to just come my way. And I, I did that for a couple of years. I then wound up um, moving on, working for American Express, started producing events, and then for a sports um, agency where I was um, in sports marketing. I decided at age 30 to start my own business. And I had so many clients between New York City and LA. I was going back and forth and I happened to meet Dick Clark in Bermuda. And Dick Clark said to me, when I finished up this event I'm working on in Bermuda, he wants me to work for him in LA. So I kept my apartment in New York, came out to LA, got a little place in Manhattan Beach, started working with Dick Clark. And he said that they were going to vie for opening ceremonies for the Olympics, the 2002 games. And he wanted me to be on the team that would um, pitch to, be, to do the opening ceremonies. I had no experience whatsoever in any of that, but I said, sure, I'd love to join and learn and so for about a year, year and a half, 
worked on that or how long it took with our whole team. We went back into Salt Lake. We presented. We had to come back again. The whole process was incredible to learn about presenting. And in a make a long story short, we didn't get it. So we were not awarded the, the opening ceremonies. However, because I did meet people while I was there presenting for Dick Clark, I said to them, you know, if there's any other position that comes up, I would, my dream would be to work for the Olympics. And so I got a call, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, 10 months later from, um, and I, from Christy, I believe, Christy Nicolay. And she said, we have an interesting situation here we'd like to talk to you about. She said, for the first time ever, um, the IOC wants to create a, um, a ceremony where at the finish line, on the field of play, live, they want to announce bronze, silver, and gold right when each competition is done. Now, typically what happens is they wait till the evening to Metal Plaza, and that's when it's announced. So they said this time what they want to see happen for people who are in the, for spectators who are sitting there as well as live TV broadcast, they want them to be at the end of the event. Okay, who won? And let's celebrate right then and there. So they said, you know, we want to see if we can make this happen for 65 events, make it a live televised um, right then and there on the field to play. Can you make that happen? You know, I just said, you know, I have no idea. She said, it's never been done. So you're really gonna have to create this and figure out what needs to be done how, when, where, what, everything. And I just thought it was a fabulous challenge. And I said, well, you know what? Sign me up. I'll move out there. Yes. I want to see if I can make this happen. So moved out to Park City. Um, Actually, I moved out and they put me up in Salt Lake City. And the first thing, you know, after a few meetings and figuring out, learning the venues and learning what's involved and the sports. I didn't know all the competitions that were involved. 65, you know, live, t- you know, I'm, I'm, I was your typical just person who knew about winter Olympics. I didn't know that much, but I started trying to figure out what's involved with interpreters and doping and uniforms. And then there's the, you know, you have to build all the podiums. There's the flowers for this. There's the presenters, there's the music, there's everything that was involved. And, you know, commercial break, live television, because no one's done this before, there was nobody to ask, you know, what did you do here? What did you do? Which is a good thing and a bad thing because you're creating it as you go along. So the first thing I did was hire an assistant and I became so lucky. I was able to get someone by the name of Rachel Kaber, who was a godsend to me. I interviewed tons and tons of people and, and she became my right hand person. And, you know, we just spent days and days figuring out how do we make this happen. We had two and a half minutes from every time from the last person, say, would cross the finish line. TV would go to live commercial break. And then we had two and a half minutes to get everything on the field to play. You have to get the podiums. You have to get the winners lined up. You have to get the um, the ones who are presenting to them. You have to get the music cued. You have to get everything ready to go because in two and a half minutes, they come back live and the music starts and they start marching. You have to have the flowers in hand. Well, that seemed at the beginning, the first time we tried it, I think it probably took us about 45 minutes and we had to get it down to about two and a half minutes, that time frame. So pushing things out and setting it up. And after hiring a staff of about 90 people, I think I had, a, I had a brought on about 90 people for my presentations department and practicing and practicing and figuring out, you know, what music we wanted to do it to and how many steps and where things could be stored 
and how to not freeze the flowers and how the, I mean, everything could work and rehearsed and rehearsed. And it was an incredible, incredible journey for me and um, learning. And it was a dream come true. And by the time the Olympics, like when day one started, it was all my teams. It was my team that was at skiing or my team that was at snowboarding, my team at ice skating, my team at ski jump. Um, they were the ones who were fully responsible. My work almost had been done. And then what my job was to do was to make sure, okay, where there was problems to come in and solve it that evening. If they said, okay, we couldn't find, you know, sometimes they're all on headsets and they're like number, you know, Japan, number 214 got the silver. Well, my person had to make sure that's the person, you know, lined up to get that silver. Well, when you get 40 guys jumping in the stands and you're having doping there, you don't know which one's 214 the obstacles, the challenges were incredible to make this happen. So there were a few screw ups, just a few, nothing major, but, um, you know, where we couldn't find one of the person who won and it's because he jumped in to be with his parents and, you know, there's tons of things like that. But by the time the Olympics were ready to happen and, um, it all worked out so well that they wound up writing it into the bylaws and my transfer of knowledge report was going to the next Olympics to say the IOC decided they were going to continue this for the next, for that's it, to put it in the books that this is how it was going to be done from now on, have live presentations for, for broadcast and for spectators to enjoy. So that was my role as the executive producer to make that happen. All right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> One thing I want to get a sense of is the timing. So Christy Nicolay says, okay, we have this new thing. We need you to crack this nut. But how long did you have? I mean, when did you actually come and join the committee? And how much time did you have to actually come up with the concepts and do all the preparations uh, before the games themselves? I'd say a year. I'd say it was a, a year um, that it took. Maybe I don't I can't remember now if it was over a year. It might have been a little over a year. I'm not sure. But. Give or take a year, a little over a year. So, um, there was, yeah, there were so many departments that had to be involved with this, that, you know, everyone had to be involved. And like I said, when, because it was the first time they were doing this and not understanding, okay, well, the person who's keeping their eyes on the athletes for doping purposes and, but I need my interpreter to tell that person they won. So they need to go with my, my presenter. And, you know, make sure, and everyone who has that field to play um, credential, because we're on the field to play. So making sure that my people in there are allowed to be in right where that is and pulling in all the equipment, all of a sudden you have to push in all the podiums and the, and things. And, you know, all of a sudden if the music doesn't start or if it starts and we're not walking fast enough or, you know, it was exciting. The adrenaline was amazing. And to get all these great people as presenters and locals and, but my team of producers to do that, to make it happen, were, were fabulous. One big family. So you mentioned that uh, it initially started out, it took you about 45 minutes to do it <laughs> uh, when you really had about two and a half minutes. So yeah. was it, it just I mean, uh, the fact of repetition that after? Or were there some other things that you did to reduce the time? Because that's quite a bit of a, or a time reduction yeah. to go from a 45 minute uh, production exactly. to two and a half minute production. You know, what did you do to whittle it down? I think it was figuring out where do you store 
all the equipment because we're not allowed to before since the, it's going on live the the competitions so we're only allowed you know to put all the equipment behind the, the lines but it's figuring out you know how close can we get to that field of play then the refrigeration for the flowers where all the flowers have to look you know where where's that going to go um where do you line up to begin before and where does the actual podiums get set and who's the ones that are moving it there and who's the ones that are showing you know the the parade up until there so that i mean it was a combination of how much music will play before you get there how much you know where the things are going to be pushed in who gets to push it in and changing locations maybe it's coming downhill maybe it's coming from uphill maybe it's you know under a bleacher and it's figuring that out but it took a lot of um a lot of time yeah it you know we got from 45 minutes and maybe we made it to 38 minutes and 30 and you'd have to just keep figuring working and working it all right so i've got another curious question how did you choose the flower bearers you know what? I think for the flower bearers, they were just local. Most of them were um, local girls and maybe some guys from from Utah, from Salt Lake, who came in. I think we just held sort of auditions. We wanted bubbly and responsible and things like that. Those were our flower bearers. And what's so interesting, I still have. So I had to create with a company. That was another thing. What's going to hold these flowers in as they're walking towards podium we had all different you know coming up with ideas and i mean that alone took a few months to meet with different designers and what should we have and do and um to this day i still have two of the official 2002 the first ones olympic flower holders so it's these metal with these three you know areas and it's for bronze silver and gold and i have them back in new jersey where my parents are um which I love to see that I have the official, you know, flower bearing, pulling things. And so I, we just chose on who was bubbly and sweet from the community, um, which was, which was really nice. And uh, yeah. And that was it. You know, another part of my job though, with Salt Lake, which came across, it was very interesting was one day in a meeting with salt production with, with our sports production because it was after nine 11. And so everything, you know, people were down and sponsors had backed out and, um, we had said, well, maybe we should get some voices to, um, let the, the people know in the crowds that we really appreciate that they're here supporting us still because people were scared. So I said, well, I know Jay Leno pretty well. I know obviously Dick Clark and because of what I've been working on with Dick Clark with some other things, like I know some celebs and I don't know a lot, but and Christy, my boss, said, do you think you'll be able to get them to say on tape, you know, hey, welcome to the games? I'm like, I could ask. So sure enough, a couple of days later, I came back and I said, oh, I was able to get a couple of these sound bites saying, welcome to the 2001 Winter Olympic Games. You know, it's cold out there. Stay warm. Thanks for being here. Well, the next thing I knew that turned into my job number two, which I was then um, asked to get, I think, about 100 sound bites. I traveled every day. It was all over LA and New York, all A-list celebrities, known recognizable voices. So from a Sylvester Stallone to a Sean Connery to Sarah Jessica Parker, I mean, Kobe Bryant, you know, any known mus musicians, actor, celebrity, um, and Goldie Hawn, you know, and they would say, hi, this is Goldie. Welcome to the games. And thanks for being here, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, what started out as me just saying, I know two people 
it turned into this whole big new thing that I got to do, which was really fun because I went to all their homes and it was quick. And I got to interview or, or have them say this quick little soundbite to about a hundred celebrities for that, for that year. And they played that when people were walking into the, all the venues and leaving. Yeah, you can hear those voices all over the place, even in the airport. I'm curious about the voices. Did anybody say no? Um, you know what? At the time, you said, I can't remember who said no, but I started to get smart. You know, I used to be a publicist and I, I sort of know the industry. So when I would talk to these managers or agents of them and I'd say, hey, you know, we just got, we have, um, you know, Brad Pitt and George Clooney are on. So are you going to do it as well with them or, you know, with them? And all of them wanted to know who else was doing it. So no, I don't think anyone had said no. I mean, I made them feel it was right after 9-11 when I'm saying show your support. I mean, how could they say no? You know, we're going to them, but um, no one said no. There were a couple funny incidences where I went to Michael Douglas's condo and um, everyone told me he was such a womanizer and I got there and he asked if I wanted a drink and I said, I'd love a glass of wine. And he said, he just meant water. <laughs> and I was embarrassed. I thought he was sort of like coming on to me and he was not whatsoever. And then at, um, Sylvester Stallone's house, I was there and, um, my boyfriend was supposed to be the sound guy to help me because he really wanted to meet Sylvester Stallone. And I was told that he didn't want him inside. He didn't want anyone but me in the house. So I told my boyfriend to just sit in the car and wait for me. And when I, when I finished up and walked outside, my boyfriend was not in the car. So it meant he was somewhere on the grounds. And I was furious and I didn't know how to tell Sly Stallone that my boyfriend's roaming on his property. And I'm sorry, you know, and there was a, there was a few funny things that went down with once I put my, the headset that I thought Sarah Jessica Parker was supposed to wear, I put it on my own ears and then I didn't know it goes, does it go on hers or mine? And, you know, <laughs> so it was fun, but they were very, very sweet about it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's <laughs> so funny. Now, what about the design elements? You know, um, the podium, it needs to look really nice, but it also has to be very functional and it has to work in adverse conditions. So what went into the design of the podium? You know, that it's people, it's so interesting because people have no idea what it takes to do something like this. I mean, to, to make this happen and to create it and all the different elements. So exactly what you're bringing up the podium. So we had to, you know, figure out a podium that was lightweight, that we obviously could push very quickly onto an icy or snowy or whatever area that it could hold these players, you know, on them, these, these com competitors um, that could be pushed away that had the Olympic, you know, symbol, how would they be on it? How would they stack up in storage as well as when they put together? So I would, again, you know, go to meeting after meeting, work with designers. They would do one. I would say, you know, no, they would do another one. And depending upon the material that could be used. So this was all the different departments of the Olympics, but then outsource going to other vendors and that process, you know, you'd have to have an approved vendor, so you go to someone that they already said you could work with and, you know, then you have to make sure, you know, there's a lot of red tape, but you have to make sure, you know, what's approved and if it's in the budget and then, you know, you bring it back, it's all a system, but, um, it did take quite a while to figure out what would work and it worked well. 
I mean, they did, nobody, thank God, nobody fell off, but you have to really make sure that they're stable and yeah. I mean, what was hardest, I think, about it were that the flowers wouldn't die. So when the flowers, I mean, we would have flowers delivered and we needed refrigeration for them. And to get them delivered, there was such high security at that point, again, because of 9-11. So to get flowers dropped off and delivered, get them to the right place in, in store, store them in a place that they won't die in water, and then be able to get that over because they could die very quickly in the winter. They could just droop like that. So, and these were um, pretty much flowers that were indigenous of Utah, wildflowers. But a couple of times we'd go and the flowers would look dead. And I'm like, how did they get dead? They just got here, you know? And I'm like, just use them anyway. But a few times the flowers didn't look so great, but that happens. It's interesting. I mean, I understand the rationale for going with indigenous flowers, right? Because we want to showcase the state of Utah and our natural beauty and so on and so forth. But most of those flowers are out of season in the middle of February. So where do you find the flowers? I don't know. That was someone on my team had to be the one responsible to where to get the flowers and always have backup. And, you know, that was um, I can't remember at this point. I mean, it's so funny. I just found where I am now in Orange County. I have a whole Olympic you know, big case where I have my Olympic, um, my medals and my books and the music and my photo albums and, you know, some really funny pictures and, and just everything that I, that I love looking back at. Cause it was such an incredible, memorable, you know, life-changing experience. But when I think back of how, you know, going through it, you're, you're saying this is never going to happen. How are all these departments going to make this work and leading up to it? Again, since it was fairly close to 9-11, you know, the security aspect, I was terrified for. I'm a New Yorker and I actually lost a lot of people. So I had this sort of, um, I had some issues with it and, and very nervous, but you just keep thinking with all the meetings and all the meetings and all the meetings, is this really going to happen and, and go off? And it was such a seamless, fabulous, you know, Olympics that I, I couldn't get over. It really did come together. And everyone is so professional and is the team that, that sort of that you make there for a year, year and a half. I mean, they're your family, they're your everything. And, you know, um, my grandmother had passed while I was there during the Olympic trials. I didn't go to her funeral. This was, it was too important for me to be there because we were practicing. And so I had to, that was more important is practicing for the, and you know, my dad had said, don't worry, grandma's would want you to be at you know the Olympic trials and do that. Um, learning about the sports and just being a part and, and having those meetings every night with my team and finding out, you know, what's the issues and trying to res resolve them. And I driving around in my Olympic truck that they gave me. And I had a place both in downtown Salt Lake city that they gave me. And then myself and two other girls on my team, we rented a, a house on main street in park city right above no name saloon. So we have two places to stay. And um, just, you know, that feeling of, of there's nothing like it, unless I feel like somebody's worked at an Olympic games and been a part of it. It's just, there's, there's no other feeling that brings on out of all the events I've ever worked on still up there as the top. Well, I have to come back to the nine 11 thing for just a moment because it had uh, some impact on 
the operation because now we had the secret service involved in security. So when it came back to the operation, did you have to retool some things in order for it to pass the new security measures or was everything pretty much uh, set in stone? Well, when I, when it happened, when 9-11 happened and I was on the phone and my brother-in-law was one of the, um, he got out of the second building on time. He made it out. So he was a survivor. But uh, as I said, I lost a lot of people. So about two days after it happened, I flew back to New York. I had an apartment in New York City at the time. I flew back and I wanted to be there. I had 38 funerals to go to. And I called Christy and I said, I don't think I can come back. I think I'm done with the Olympics. And she let me be there for about six weeks in New York City. And then I called back and, you know, all my friends and family, they said, Reese, you've been working on this for so long. This is what your dream is. You've got to go back. And I called and she said, of course, she saved my position. She didn't fill it. So after six weeks of being back in New York City, I came back. And that's when I started. um, I had to sit in on meetings for sniper training because I was the head of my department of the presentations, you know, sitting with FBI and teaching us sniper trainings and where the where they would be in which trees and how my emergency exits would be for my teams, which directions I would take them, um, how they would listen to me in terms of the command. If something happened, you know, where we're all going to meet and where, and so it greatly changed. And when we had to do all of our drills in the buildings, um, we had, I was in the international building. So we had a lot of drills, um, getting out of the buildings and that was pretty, you know, scary. I have definitely a few major, you know, panic attacks for that, but dealing with the FBI and sniper training and CIA and, and the different credentials. And it was, yeah, every it, things did change. And it took off that little, that innocence of the Olympics and that joy. There was a level there that was still very heavy. And all the people that my family were going to come and be there for the Olympics. And I asked them not to, I was too, I said, I'd be too nervous having them there. If something was to happen, I, I, I still was too nervous. So my parents didn't come and my, my sister and whatnot, but, um, yeah, we were all very aware and had to do a lot of training for terrorism attack. Where would we go? What would we do? How it would happen? And that's what, you know, I had all the, everything mapped out where I knew the snipers would be and the trees. And yeah, it was really interesting. So why don't you tell me what was a day in the life of Risa like during games time? I mean, you got a place down in Salt Lake, you got a place up in Park City. Are you just running around like a chicken with your head cut off or do you have kind of a routine that you settled into? I was um, during the games. I was pretty settled in. Um, I was lucky enough that I had gotten a call from the Today Show and I was offered from uh, to be a guest with Katie and Katie uh, Keurig and Matt, La- Matt Lauer to talk about the flower ceremony since it was the first time and to be a little correspondent of the Olympics. So of course I'm such a ham. I wouldn't turn that down. I was so excited to, to be on air on the today show with Katie and Matt. And so I had that, um, to do with them for a little bit, but then during the competitions, really, I just rode around to the different venues as I, could. And as I said, I was just there to get the call, say the, whatever event, you know, yes, we just did our ceremonies. We're checking in. It went out great. You know, another one. So I always felt that when the the day the game started, my job was almost over except for then troubleshooting in the evenings and making changes to how it could go better. 
but really it was up to my teams who I've trained and work with. It was their responsibility when the game started to make it happen. All right. So the Today Show, that's amazing. I mean, that's super it cool. Was very cool. But it brings to mind, yeah, it brings to mind something, which is uh, what you're doing here is highly visible, right? It's being televised. It is the is the point of the televised segment is to show these ceremonies. And because it's so visible, uh, I'm sure that our friends in the IOC, they, they want to make sure that everything looks great. Did you have to go through a lot of approvals to get things the way you wanted them? Or was the process pretty smooth to get uh, all the look and the design elements and the protocol and everything approved? You know, um, looking back, it wasn't as difficult as it could have been. Um, you know, I, I really went through more or less my department who then had to pass it through. Um, I wasn't dealing directly with the IOC. It must have been Christy or Scott who were dealing with them. But um, because, it, again, it hadn't been done before, I think a lot of times people would throw it up in the air and they were just, you know, all they wanted to know is, is it going to happen? Is it in, on budget? Um, and what can go wrong, you know, and how are we going to make sure that nothing goes wrong or, or if it does, how are we going to resolve it? So I think that they really let me run with it. I mean, I remember being truly responsible for all elements and, and they, you know, when I would say, this is what we need to do, I didn't get too much pushback in too many areas, um, for anything. So the game's end, uh, what's next and, uh, what's that, what's the next step oh, in Risa's so life? I had a very hard time. I, the game's end. I was there for maybe, what, three, four more days. I couldn't believe how everything just like folded up immediately. Um, you know, they prepare you a little for that, a little. And I always know it as an event producer, I always know, you know, post-event depression, there's no doubt. And you know to expect it. But from the Olympics being, I lived it every day with my team um, for a year and a half, say, and then all of a sudden there's no Olympics, there's nothing. And I went back to my apartment in Manhattan beach and it just, not only I missed my friends, I missed waking up in the morning, wait, walking down main street and going to roots and Starbucks and, you know, being in my, my ski clothes 24 seven, I wore my ski outfits 24 seven there. Um, all of a sudden you're like, what now? And what can compare to what I just went through with the adrenaline of it? You know, what's out there now? And it was for me personally, it was very, very difficult. And, you know, everybody said to me, now that you've done this as an executive producer of ceremonies, you'll get any job. I mean, look at what you accomplished and, you know, you did this and now it's a, it's now um, truly in their laws and bylaws. And I started looking at other work and either everything seemed boring to me or, um, somewhere it wasn't a fit. So I went back to having my own company, New Leaf Events and Marketing. But it was just, you know, I started doing my things again and producing for a Super Bowl fashion show. And um, I started, you know, whatever I was doing and uh, events, event production. But I was really missing, missed it hard. It, it took me a, a really a long time to, to get back into the swing of things. Uh, yeah, I think that happened for a lot of us. Um, and like you say, it's natural, but it still doesn't make it feel better <laughs> when you're going through it. Now, I do have to ask about any key learnings from those games that you've incorporated in your professional life. 
I think there are probably many. Um, the one that really stands out is that, you know, there's a, many ways to make something happen for an end result. And there's many ways to, to make it to an end result. And I think learning that, you know, if I see to get to point B is to go like this and someone else says you can go like this and someone else says, well, you can go down and up. I think that it's learning. All right. Um, we all have different ideas. The ultimately we all come up with the same point B and to respect that. And it doesn't have to be the perfect route. It just has to happen. And because you have, when you are having 90 people report to you, you know that there's going to be people who do things differently than you. And, um, even though it's maybe they didn't, they didn't choose the way that you would have, as long as they're making it happen and it does happen, I think that's the most important and to respect other people's choices in that and to show them that you respect it and you, you know, you have faith in their ability. So it's, I, I know that a lot of times, you know, I was spirit heading the whole thing and I started telling my, all the employees, all the people working for me, I trust you in making this decision. If something happens and all of a sudden there's no flowers there, you don't have to call me. I want you to, you know, I learned that you really need to trust the people who are working for you and not always is it going to come out right. Um, or it might be a little different than you would have chosen, but it's still okay. And it's going to happen. All right, Risa. Well, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. Before we get to our final segment, though, any other stories? I just want to give you an opportunity here. Any other stories that uh, you feel like you need to share with us before we get to the end? This one's a good one. So... I had a bunch of my girlfriends from LA come and visit one night. Um, I was living with another producer who was a snowboarding producer named Judy Diatown. We were sharing a, a place on Main Street and we took all, about four other girls. We were all out on town. And that was the night that Jimmy Shea won the gold. And there was a party for him on Main Street that he won the gold. And there was a big life-size cutout of Jimmy Shea. And our apartment was right next door to, to where the party was. And we decided, um, we were at the party and we saw Jimmy and said, Oh, congratulations. And, um, I remember, uh, batter up, uh, who was there from, um, Oh, the baseball player, uh, who does batter up Johnny, uh, Oh, it doesn't matter who was there, but a bunch of us were there and we see this lifestyle cut out of Jimmy Shea holding the gold and one of my girlfriends grabs it and takes it out the back door of the venue and brings it back to our con our house. And we wind up taking really funny pictures of the life size cutout. We put a robe on him, you know, with a coffee mug. We put him in the shower. We put him outside on the balcony. We put him all over the like doing things. And I got a call from someone and saying the life size cardboard cutout of Johnny of Jimmy Shea has been stolen. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, we have it in my car. So they're like, if you see anyone, you know, that was important, blah, blah, blah. So of course we get it back there about two hours later and it's all okay. And about and a year and a half later, I'm in New York city invited to like an ESPN dinner of some sorts. And the table they have me at, I happen to be sitting next to Jimmy Shea and I, say, Hey, Jimmy. I said, I was a producer at the Olympics. I know you won the gold. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I said, I have something to show you on my phone, some pictures. And he's like, what? And I take out my, my, that I had, and I 
wind up showing him. And I'm like, this was the night that your cardboard cutout got stolen. And it was all my girlfriends. And we put it all over the apartment and took pictures and it looks real. And he was dying laughing. And he's like, Oh my God, that is so funny. He's like, I'm so flattered. And I wound up making doubles for him and sending it to him, but it was, we got a big kick out of it. So we still do. That's an awesome story. Um, you know, we're going to be launching a website soon for this podcast and uh, I'm actually actively asking people to submit pictures. So if you still have photos, uh, send them through sure and we'll do. throw them on the site. Absolutely. <laughs> this has been uh, this has been a lot of fun, Risa. I really appreciate it, and uh, look forward to getting the pictures. Let's get to the final segment now. Uh, let's go to music. I don't know. It could have been when you were commuting from Park City to Salt Lake or whatever, or something that you know, a competition or something you witnessed during the games. But was there a particular song or a musical group, an artist that when you hear them today, it immediately takes your mind back to Salt Lake City? I think it's ABBA. Dancing Queen, just because I know that myself and some of the other girls who I danced with, we used to put it on in the in the morning and dance around to the song Dancing Queen. So that sort of gets me, yeah, in just the group. When I hear that, I think of, of us dancing back in, yeah, back in Park City. All right, fantastic. Ava, Dancing Queen. We have a Spotify playlist uh, that has all the songs that have been nominated by everybody that's been on this podcast. Okay. And so we'll put Dancing Queen on the list. Okay. Now let's turn our thoughts to food. So um, was there a restaurant or a place that you like to hang out that you just went to all the time? You really like go there when you were working there in the Solid 2002 games? Three. So my my three were Stein Erickson Lodge. I love their fondue and white wine. That would be that I was in love with. Then at the international, then in part in uh, Salt Lake City, there was that little crepe guy who was outside that, and I always got his ham and cheese crepes for lunch, which I love that little crepe pop-up um, guy. And then my favorite sushi restaurant was in um, Salt Lake City. And now I can't remember the name of it. A woman was the head sushi chef there. But it was, by all means, my favorite sushi restaurant was in Salt Lake City. I just can't remember the name offhand. Um, we'll make sure we get those added as well. And now uh, we'll go to our final question for you. It sounds like the games were an amazing experience for you. But if I had to make you choose, is there one particular goosebump moment? You know, it's that it's that moment that just gives you all those warm feelings inside whenever you think about it. When I hear, when I saw the first ceremony take place on the field of play and the music came on on cue and I have headsets on for it and I'm listening and I see everything go and I sat back and said I made this happen I see live television broadcast I see the spectators in the in the you know all there I hear the music cue up knowing I picked out this portion of the song I see the flowers I picked. I see, you know, everything that I worked on for a year and a half happened seamlessly. And to sit there and think like, I made this happen, those goosebumps and felt, you know, I'm here today. A dream was to work on the Olympics. And um, I just made, you know, I'm working on the Olympics. I'm here. And and this is a fabulous, you know, gift to me to, to have this in my life and as a memory. Uh, that's an awesome memory. I appreciate you so much sharing that with us, uh, Risa, and really spending the time uh, sure. to the, today, this morning to uh, speak with me and share your stories. Now, 
If people want to learn more about the work you're doing with the Beyond Aspen publication mm-hmm. or uh, any other projects you're working on, or do they just want to reconnect and talk about Salt Lake 2002, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? I'm just at Risa at RisaFeldman.com. Just, yeah, just Risa at RisaFeldman.com and they could email me. No problem. All right, perfect. Risa at RisaFeldman.com. Uh, It's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you soon. Thank you so much, Risa. Thank you.